I'm going to begin this morning by reading some words from the distant past. I'm curious if any of you know who spoke these words. By the President of the United States of America, a proclamation. Whereas it is the duty of all nations to acknowledge the providence of Almighty God, to obey His will, to be grateful for His benefits, and humbly to implore his protection and favor, and whereas both houses of Congress have by their joint committee requested me to recommend to the people of the United States a day of public thanksgiving and prayer to be observed by acknowledging with grateful hearts the many signal favors of Almighty God. George Washington. Our first president, October 3rd, 1789, pronouncing Thanksgiving as a national holiday. What's your point for, for sharing those words? Is it that we were a perfect nation or a perfect people back then? No, that's not my point. Not my point at all. But that it is absolutely crucial for imperfect people to cry out to God for mercy and then thank him for his mercy and his many blessings. When we do that, when we thank God, we give him glory for his blessings, we acknowledge that our blessings are not the end of all things. The glory of God is the end of all things. Today, in the book of Matthew, we're going to see that many of the religious leaders in Israel had forgotten that God's glory was the, the end of all things. And hopefully, hopefully, we can carry some lessons out of here into our lives today. The big question we're going to be having in the back of our minds as we go through a parable that Jesus told was, is whose vineyard is it? Whose vineyard is it? If you have your Bibles, please open them to Matthew 21, 33. Jesus begins, hear another parable. And as we go through the parable, I'm going to ask you eight sub-questions to, to keep in your mind. The, the first one actually matches the one that's up there. Whose vineyard was it in the parable? Verse 33, there was a master of a house who planted a vineyard. And put a fence around it to protect it from wild animals and, and bandits, right? He dug a wine press in it for them to make wine out of the grapes that they grew. Put a tower in it. That was a watchtower to look out for danger towards the vineyard. So it was a generous master who provided everything they needed in their vineyard and leased it to tenants and went into another country. So back to the question. This is the first of the eight. Whose vineyard was it? The master's vineyard. Okay, second question. Whose fruit was it? Verse 34. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. Whose fruit was it? The master's. 
To be sure, when these arrangements were, were made in this culture, the tenants got to enjoy some of that fruit, but at the end of the day, the fruit belonged to the master. Question three, what response should the master expect from his tenants when he asks for some of his fruit? That they give him the fruit that belongs to him, right? Question four, how did these tenants respond? First, the master sent some servants. How would they respond to them? Verse 35, the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants, more than the first, and they did the same to them. Who are these servants? Yes, the prophets. The prophets that had come to Israel time and time again. And think about how many of them were treated along the way. Tradition has it that the prophet Isaiah was sought into. We know from Scripture that the prophet Jeremiah was thrown into a well. We know the prophet Amos was told to, to get his message out of there and take it elsewhere. Here's question five. What kind of master would send more and more servants after the tenants beat and killed the first ones? Just ponder that for a minute. What kind of master keeps sending more servants? But it went beyond that. Verse 37. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, they will respect my son. In the other gospels, he's referred to as the only son, the beloved son. This is question six, and it's closely related to the last one. What kind of master would send his only beloved son after they killed his servants? It wasn't uncommon for masters like this in a situation like this to hire a squad of hitmen and send them in to do what needed to be done. Not this master. He sends his son. What kind of master is this? It's the kind of master that we learn of in Exodus 34 when Moses asked for a glimpse of God. And God describes himself as slow to anger, abounding in love, forgiving, iniquity. Any actual masters listening to this story probably would have thought this master in the story was naive. Why would he do this? I like what William Hendrickson said. He said, this is a parable depicting sin most unreasonable and love incomprehensible. How would they treat the son? Verse 38, when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. 
So there's question seven. Whose inheritance was it? The son's inheritance. What did the tenants do? Verse 39, they took him, threw him out of the vineyard, and killed him. You think about the response to the servants and the son, you might think about what Stephen said right before they stoned him in Acts chapter 7. Verse 51, he said, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. Here's the final question I want to ask you as we go through the parable. How would the master respond to their treatment of his son? There were religious leaders listening to Jesus as he spoke this. This was the week before the cross. He asked them the question, how would the master respond? Verse 40, when therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? And watch this, out of their own lips comes the verdict. Verse 41, they said to him, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. Now let's go through this parable and unpack the, the various components. The master, who is that? The heavenly father on high. The vineyard, who is that? Israel. If you doubt that, go home this afternoon and read Isaiah 5, 1 through 7. I'll just read verse 7. The vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. And the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, an outcry. Who were the tenants? The religious leaders of Israel, most of them. The servants, as you said earlier, were the prophets, and of course, the son was Jesus Christ, the very one standing in their presence telling them this parable. The verdict the leaders had spoken out of their own lips was the verdict upon themselves. You might remember back in the Old Testament when David did the same thing, when Nathan confronted him for his sin. What was the problem with these tenants? What was the problem with Israel's religious leaders at the time? Deep down, they forgot whose vineyard it was. They forgot whose fruit it was. So they refused to give it. They forgot who the glory belonged to. They wanted to keep the glory for themselves. They forgot whose inheritance it was. So they killed the master's son. Despite what they said, you know what? The master had become an afterthought to them. 
as the prophet Jeremiah put it, his name was near in their mouths, but far from their hearts. For many, it had become all about them. All about them. And that left no room to receive God's Messiah. Now, I'm going to shift from talking about a vineyard to a stone. Verse 42, Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the scriptures the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Do you understand the picture here? There, there's builders building a building, and they come across a large stone, and they say, that's a worthless rock. Get it out of here. And they go chuck it in the, the garbage pile. They reject it. But what happened? That stone has become the cornerstone. You know what a cornerstone is? It is the most important stone in a building. Not only does it set the direction this way and this way, it sets the direction this way. What's he talking about? He was rejected, crucified. But what happened? He rose again and became the cornerstone of the church. Peter references this. 1 Peter 2, 5, he says to the church, you yourselves are like living stones. You're being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. You get the picture? If you're a believer, you're a living stone, but you're built with other believers on the cornerstone. And it is Jesus Christ who sets the direction. For his church. He is foundational to the church. But Jesus goes on talking to these leaders who would reject him. Verse 43, therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. You imagine how this hit them. In that moment, what do we learn about God here? He's not only a God who's slow to anger, abounding in love and forgiving iniquity. He is a God who will not leave the guilty unpunished. So does this mean he broke his promises to Israel? Absolutely not. Ironically, his promise to Abraham that he would be a blessing to the world came through the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ of the Jewish race. Genesis 12, 3, In you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Not to mention, if you know your Bible, you know that he's not done. He's not done with Israel. Read Romans 9, Romans 10, Romans 11. I'll just give you... Two verses from there, Romans eleven twenty eight, as Paul writes to Christians regarding the Jewish folks who don't believe. As regards the gospel, 
They are enemies for your sake. But as regards election, he says, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Irrevocable. So when he says it's going to be given to a people producing its fruit, who is that? I believe it's the church made up of believing Gentiles and believing Jews. Think about what Peter said in 1 Peter 2.9. He says, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Have you ever thought of yourself that way as part of the church? What a privilege. What a responsibility. He's going to shift from talking about a cornerstone now to a crushing stone. Verse 44, the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Know what I believe he's thinking about there and what they would have been thinking about? They would have been thinking back to Daniel 2. You remember there was an image of a statue that, that described all the nations that would be throughout history, right? But verse 34 said, as you looked, a stone was cut, cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. It's explained in verse 44. In the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed. Nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end. And it shall stand forever. Nutshell here, there's only one kingdom that will stand in the end. That is the kingdom that has Jesus Christ as king on the throne. I want you to think carefully about the ramifications of this. There's bad news and there's good news. I'll start with the bad news. If you do not take refuge in Jesus Christ... Nothing in all creation can protect you from the holy wrath of God. The good news, if you do take refuge in Christ, nothing in all creation can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Have you taken refuge in Jesus Christ, the Savior King? Listen to how it's described in Psalm 2, referring prophetically to the Messiah. Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. It's the bad news again, right? But it's mercifully followed by the wonderful news. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Have you taken refuge in Jesus Christ? 
Did the leaders listening to Jesus that day get the point? Did he know who he was talking to? Yeah, they knew. Verse 45 says, when the chief priests and the, the Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking about them. They knew full well who it was aimed at. And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. Now, as we close, you might be saying, I understand the parable. I understand what it meant for them. But you might be saying, what, what can we carry out of here today in 2023? And I want to break it down in three categories. Church, the individual believer, and the nation. I'm going to start with the church. God is still looking for fruit in his vineyard. As we said earlier, the church is now the tenants of that vineyard. He's looking for fruit from his vineyard. You say, what fruit? You probably go to Galatians 5, the fruit of the Spirit. You start there, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, and it goes on. The fruit of obedience in our lives, obedience to his commands, the fruit of lives that worship him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, the fruit of going into all the world as we go, making disciples, right? It's all for his glory. I want you to think about this. I want to play a little game with you for just a minute to, to drive this home. And we'll, we'll call the game, Who is the Audience? And I'm going to put up three pictures. Okay, first picture. Let's go. This is from a recent World Series. And you tell me, in this picture, is the audience, the guy pointed to by the blue arrow, the white arrow, or the people pointed to by the orange arrow? Orange. That's right. That's the audience at that baseball game. Now let's go to a political rally. Hopefully we don't ruffle too many feathers. I had to pick somebody. All right, go to the next. Okay. We're at a Tim Scott rally here. Which arrow points to the audience? <laughs> Which arrow points to the audience? Orange. Orange, correct? Now let's go to a church service. Next slide, please. You got the preacher at the bottom with a white arrow and those listening with orange arrows. Who's the audience here? <laughs> nice, nice. It's a trick question, right? You can't see the audience there. The audience is neither the preacher nor the crowd. The audience is God himself. And he wants your wholehearted worship. He wants my wholehearted worship. How would that change the way we viewed church? If we realize when Mike or Aaron and the team are up here singing, it's not a show for us. It's a call for us to worship from hearts that love God, hearts that have zeal 
for God. When, when we pray, it's not just to fill time in a service. Do, do we pray with anticipation of what God will do and, and thankfulness in our hearts that he hears us? When we preach the word of God, are, are we viewing ourselves as spectators with our score sheet or are we sitting there with our Bible open saying, Father, what do you have for me? What do you want to do with your word by your spirit in my life this week? And help me surrender to that, Father. He is the audience. Now think about that. Church, we're worshipers, not watchers. Right? We're, we're servants of the high king, not, not spectators. And don't get me wrong, there are blessings within the church from God because of his grace. And part of church is serving each other with the gifts that God has given us. But if we think the primary purpose of church is to cater to us, in our desires, I want this passage to be a wake-up call. Right? The church is here to tend God's vineyard and present the fruit to him. All to the praise of his glorious grace. Is that why you're here? Is that why I'm here? You look around us in 2023. I want us to guard against the temptation to make this all about us. I don't want this to become a church where we make it all about us because what happens when we do that? Instead of conforming our life to God's image and God's word, we start to alter God's word to conform to our image, right? We leave this part out. We don't preach on that. Or we change this. Because it's really become all about us. And you know where that leads? It leads to a, a church building where the doors are open and the lights are on, but Jesus has left the building. I don't want that. I don't think you want that either. We're warned about it in Revelation chapter 2. The lampstand is the church in Ephesus. Jesus is confronting them that they have lost their first love for him. And you know what he says in Revelation 2, 5? Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. May Jesus Christ always be the love of this church. As the church, what about the individual believer in the church? Some have well said, well, walking with Jesus isn't just a church service. And I'd say amen, but I'd also add this. It is not less than a church service. We're commanded to gather together 
to not forsake the assembly of ourselves together, it's not less than a, a church service. It's more. He doesn't just want your, your worship for one hour on Sunday or my worship. He wants Monday through Saturday too. That's his vineyard as well. And I think about that. How would that change the way I live this week if I realized that? In a couple key areas. That God wants his fruit from his vineyard. He wants the glory in the various areas of my life and your life. What if, what if before I left here this morning, I said, God, I know you want fruit out of my home life. How can I obey you and bring you glory in my marriage this week? How, how would you call me to love my spouse, husbands, as Christ loves the church? How would you call me to bring you glory in the way I interact with my children? What if we remembered it wasn't just for us and our family, it's, it's for him and his glory? What about your occupation? Whether you're a homemaker or a CEO, what if you realize, hey, God wants fruit out of this vineyard in my life? How would that change the way you interacted with your coworkers? How would that change the way you worked even when your boss wasn't watching? What about our finances? If we realize that God wants glory even in the way we use our wallets and our checkbooks, he said, God, how do you want me to use the good gifts you've given me? It's not just church, it's individual, not just Sunday, it's, it's Monday to Saturday. And last but not least, I want to talk about our nation. Have you ever thought much about the bee in God Bless America? Say, why are you thinking about the bee and God bless America? Well, I looked at it one day and I thought, what do you have if you take the bee out of God bless America? You have Godless America. We like to say God bless America, but we have to include the bee. And I think of some words that start with B. You know what starts with B? Broken begins with B. We must be broken inside over our sin. Beg. Beg begins with B. We must call out to God on high for mercy. Belief. Belief begins with B. We must believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. Bible begins with B. We must get back into God's word and allowing it to shape the way we live our lives. Bold. Bold begins with B. Let's pray for boldness to walk in God's ways in a world that's going the other way. We love that phrase, God bless America, don't we? But do we ever ask the other question, is America a blessing to God? Listen, one thing we know from Scripture, 
you pray for revival, you pray for change, you need to know that it always, always starts with the people of God. We know this from Second Chronicles 7.14. If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. And maybe you're sitting here this morning with that cry in your heart saying, I want to be one who produces God's fruit for his glory. I want to be one who produces his fruit and gives it to him. But how? There's only one Jesus tells us in John 15, 5. He says, I am the vine. You are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Are you abiding in Jesus Christ, the true vine? Lord, I think about this passage. And I think about the fact that while Jesus came full of grace, he also came full of truth. The two worked hand in hand in his ministry, reflecting your character. We praise you on the one hand that you are a God who's slow to anger, abounding in love, forgiving iniquity. What's more difficult for us, but we need to do as well, is to praise you that you are a holy God who will not leave sin unpunished. And we pray that your spirit would work in this room right now. First, if there's anyone in this room that says, I've never trusted in Jesus, I've never kissed the Son, I've never looked to the cross and, and received that gift there for my salvation, bring him home today, Lord. Let them know you took your sin to the, their sin to that cross. You died for their sin and rose again for them. And for those of us who are part of that holy nation, here to proclaim your excellencies, I pray that you'd work in this room and that your spirit would show us any offensive way in us, any way that we've allowed church to become more about us than about you any ways we've allowed our lives to become more about us and our glory than about you and your glory. May your good spirit work in here. Help us lay those down. Thank you for the blood of Jesus, which, which cleanses us from all sin. But we also thank you for the Holy Spirit who enables us to say no to sin and yes to righteousness. And I pray that that Holy Spirit will work right now we invite you to put your finger on anything in our lives where we're hoarding it for us instead of giving it back to you. In our homes, in our workplaces, in our finances, Lord, help us remember it's your vineyard. And last but not least, we thank you for sending your son. We ask that question, what kind of master would send servant after servant, after servant, and then his only beloved son. 
And the only answer is because that master is you, God. God who is righteous, but also filled with love and grace. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.